The Rod and Staff podcast comes out of the host's passion for Christ and his church. It exists to encourage a deeper engagement with issues that pertain to doctrine and life. Check us out at rodandstaff.org. Welcome to this episode of the Rod and Staff podcast. I'm your host, Jason, along with my co-host and good friend, Roger. And we have a very special episode for you today. Uh, we're so thrilled to have with us a very special guest, uh, Mr. Lee Stro. Oh, no, I'm sorry. Uh, Dr. Kyle Strobel, uh, Lee's son. I'm sure he gets that all the time. Uh, but we're really thrilled. Uh, Kyle has a, a new book that's come out where prayer becomes real. And we would like to uh, take some time to talk about that book and, and talk to Kyle. Welcome, Kyle. Thanks, Jason. Thanks, Roger. Good to be with you guys. So we'll, we'll, uh, we'll get into the topic in, in just a second here. But Kyle, can you just uh, tell us how you've been hanging in there as a professor during this pandemic? <laughs> yeah, it's, I've become an expert at Zoom. Um, nice. <laughs> yeah, no, it's been it has been hectic, but it's been interesting. It's you know, it's funny to see how well students adapt and yet how how real Zoom fatigue is. <laughs> oh, man. Yeah. How about your kids, let alone you know, your students? They're, the kids are doing pretty well. I mean, they, um, you know, they, I mean, kids is, you know, I'm, I'm, these are grad students now. I mean. If they, oh, no, I meant your oh, my, my actual Sorry. kids. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 Sorry. Like, well, kids, <laughs> a little general, but yeah. um, no, my kids are doing well. You know, they're, they're, they're at the age, you know, 10 and seven now, turning eight this month, actually. So, you know, they, they, they bounce around pretty good. And um, we, we homeschool co-op. So actually when we went to just pure homeschooling, that wasn't really difficult for us. Okay. And so I think it probably affected them a little less. They just see their friends a little, a little less. And, um, you know, and being from the Midwest, which is where I'm originally from, I, I can only imagine COVID when you have like a real yard and not like a Southern California yard. <laughs> so a, little, a little cramped, you know, <laughs> a little bit. Yeah. Oh man. Well, at least the weather is nice, though. That's true. Yes, right. that's true. Let's be honest. So, well, Kyle, it, it is really uh, good to have you with us. Uh, I'll let our listeners know that Kyle and I went to school together at Talbot, uh, which was a, a lot of fun. We won't get into any of those stories <laughs> yet. Um, we terrorized some professors together, which was good. Uh, but, but we wanted to get some uh, background, Kyle. Just if you can give us a, a little bit of background about yourself. Obviously, people... Uh, recognize your last name. And uh, a lot of people know your dad and, and some of the books that he's written. Uh, so kind of give some background. How was it growing up with a pastor author uh, like your dad as your father? Um, how did it feel when you saw yourself on the big screen when Case for Christ came out? You know, just a little bit of background. <laughs> totally. I can tell you that nothing could have been weirder and nothing could have probably prepared me for being in a movie theater and watching myself be born. <laughs> <laughs> that that experience oh, was profoundly odd. <laughs> wow! <laughs> uh, it was a really and I remember looking around the movie theater and just being like, "This is really weird." Does anyone else think this is? Oh, you don't know me. This is weird. <laughs> um, yeah, you know, it's funny. My, in many ways, I think I was protected from some of because you know there is a weird element of growing up as a famous person's kid in evangelicalism you know i know a lot yeah. of these people i've you know it and i think i was protected from a lot because my dad didn't really become well known until after he wrote case for christ 
And that was, I was, I was in high school at that point. Mm. And so, or, or late junior high or something along those lines. So I, I didn't have that too much attachment and he was never the head of anything. He didn't have his own organization. He was a pastor, but he wasn't the head pastors. He was just, he was a teaching pastor with several others. So I, in many ways that, that I think protected me a little bit. Um, I, I know a lot of folks who kind of, when they have really well-known fathers in particular, although I imagine it's true these days with mothers as well, is that they get kind of lost in their father's wake a bit. Sure. And they kind of don't, they struggle to find themselves in that. Like, what am I supposed to do? And what am I supposed to be? And should I just mimic him? And should I just try to, you know, and I think one of the great gifts is my dad never had an organization that I could have just kind of latched onto and assumed I got a job fat. If I just, they couldn't serve me in those ways. And so, um, but you know, once, once, one of the ways it really did affect me is that, you know, when I was growing up, my dad was thinking about evangelism and apologetics questions all the time. And, and as he's working on case for Christ, you know, that I constantly heard around my home stories of people who would talk to my dad and say almost the same thing, which was, you know, 20 years ago or 10 years ago, however long I, I went to a pastor or I grew up in the church and I went to my pastor and I asked him a question and inevitably the pastor's response was something like, don't ask questions. Mm, wow. <laughs> and it was eventually reading my dad's book that like, finally someone's wrestling with the questions I had. And so when I went to undergrad, I did a biblical studies degree, but in the back of my mind, the whole time was my, thinking through, like, I don't want to be afraid of people's questions. Yeah. And I have learned a lot in undergrad, but I knew there was a lot, a lot of, particularly a lot of theology and philosophy like questions. I'm like, I just don't, I don't even understand the question, let alone the answer to them, you know? Yeah. And so a lot of what ended up driving me into grad school was, was wanting to do whatever I, I when I came to grad school, I, I, I was thinking maybe potentially being a professor, although even that was still felt pretty far off to me. I was still thinking more pastoral ministry. And so Kyle, let's, let's talk about how did you land on spiritual formation as your field or your field of expertise or what you teach in right now? Yeah. Well, you know, I came to realize when I was in seminary that all the questions that Job, I mean, I'm an academic enough where questions are interesting to me and I wrestle through things. So I can, I can all day sit around and talk about theology and, and, and I love that stuff. I mean, my PhD is in systematic theology, but what I, what drove me were, were questions about what does this mean on the ground? Like we're called to do certain things. We now call them spiritual disciplines, although I don't like that term and we never would have called them that before, but like they, they do something, but what do they do? Right. If God's the one that sanctifies us, how do, you know, how do we make sense of these things? And so it was really in um, seminary that those questions really came to a head for me. And then the thing that really shifted was when I did my PhD, I did on Jonathan Edwards and that led me into a whole world that I had never been exposed to in my background. And in many ways, I think the, the, the kind of Protestant tradition has unfortunately um, been totally alienated from its own spiritual tradition. Mm. And that, you know, we, we act as if no one's ever asked some of these questions before. And it's like, no, we, we've actually thought very deeply about these sorts of things. And so um, my degrees in systematics, and to be honest, I expected to teach systematics. I kind of expected, I just go, you know, teach theology courses. And one of the great gifts to me is that I've been hired to teach outside of my area of expertise. And so it's forced me to kind of push all my interests, my um, research, my writing, everything that direction. And um, and so spiritual formation is what I teach in. And that, that 
you know, it gets into all sorts of really interesting questions um, in the tradition with virtue formation. Um, I'm just on the front end of a book, a constructive theological book on, on sanctification. Like what is sanctification wow. doctrinally? Nice. How do we make sense of that? And Great. I, I actually think few doctrines have just left scripture for us more, more quickly than sanctification. And so there's, there's some interesting things there, but, but in terms of what I teach, you know, a lot of, you know, we get, and, and, you know, you and I were there together, you know, you, you get these, these young men mostly who aren't all that mature and they, you know, they no. feel call the ministry. <laughs> what are you talking about? We like you all... and I in the back of the room giggling, <laughs> like school children. And, um, you know, they, one of the things we were constantly trying to press in on them is to get them to wrestle through, yeah, you need to come to seminary and, and understand theology. So you need to get your theology right. But there's also this kind of subconscious theology you have. And, and we need to unearth that, right? Because that's that's been driven by the flesh. And and let's get into the how that plays itself out. And so a lot of what we end up talking about now is prayer. And, and one of the things I'm really worried about for our students is that for so many people, they go to seminary and they they learn kind of, here's a process I can do to preach well and prayer has nothing to do with it. Or here's a process I can go through and read the Bible well and prayer has nothing to do with it. And and they actually go to somebody to learn how to, to function in ministry without depending upon God, you know, and, yeah. and they, and they also don't learn. And seminary is a perfect place actually to learn that the struggles you have in prayer are actually everyone's struggles. In prayer. <laughs> like these aren't that, these aren't that kind of individual, like they're, they're, we all have these shared experiences and, and we need to talk about them. And, and the difficulty pastorally with prayer, I think, is most people are most unknown in their prayer life. Like of mm. every aspect of their life, like prayer is the most lonely and isolating for them. And they just assume that they're bad at it or yeah. that, um, it, they, you know, what? even worse than they're bad at it, I think the worst thing that can happen is we get these assumptions that are just these expectations, which it just should look like this. And right. we have this, this real clear sense of what this means. And and so a lot of a lot of my interest has led me down these avenues. Like what have, what did we used to say about these things? How, how have we understood spiritual practices in general, let alone something like prayer? And um, and then for this book, you know, John Coe, who's been kind of a long mentor of mine, it's been fun to kind of come back at this with him and try to communicate it to to the church because that's something I've always felt. You know, part of being a theologian for me it means that I, I can never serve the academy ultimately, like that I'm in service to the church. And, and I, I like the academy. I mean, I think the academy does some things well, like accountability, that these days the church doesn't do that well. Right. Um, and so there's features of it I like, but ultimately I'm in service to the church. And so in between doing kind of heavy academic books, I'm always trying to think, well, what, what is my call here to write for the average Christian? And and prayer just, in many ways, we, we kind of chose it because it's something that we've always felt bad at mm -hmm. yeah. <laughs> and, and that's good you know it's you don't want someone writing a book on prayer that just seems naturally really great at it because <laughs> what right. would they say right they'd be like just do it what's wrong with you you know yeah. um and and this is an area and the lord's been very kind to me because i feel like he constantly is calling me into things that i'm not good at like there's i'm constantly reminded of that his power is made perfect in my weakness yeah. Amen. And so this is one of those areas where it's like, ah, let's write a book on prayer. Yeah, yeah this is going to be a struggle, but let's let's do this. That's why you're writing on sanctification next. That's, that's right. Good. That's good. That's exactly that's good. right. <laughs> it's like, I don't know anything about this. So. <laughs>
Oh man. Well, I, w- I want to come back in just a minute to how you started, uh, you know, you and uh, Dr. Co, John Co worked on the book together, but before then, can you, as you've been, you've been studying theology, you've been studying Bible, apologetics, philosophy, spiritual formation, all these years, what are some of the defining maybe thought changes, mm. if I could describe it that way, yeah. that you've experienced during your studies? Yeah that's, key a, ones? yeah, that's a great question. Um, you know, one of the, there, there's several moments that and I, like, I could just think down the chain. There's several moments. One of the real key ones are um, that I, I kind of learned and didn't really understand it until I was working on my PhD, but it's that, that, we have to prioritize what, what the tradition would call definitive sanctification, mm. which is that you have been sanctified, right? Mm. And, and that that is, you know, for so long, and this is another one of those things that I understood academically, like I understood kind of conceptually, right. but no one had helped me really see that subconsciously I wasn't living that way. Like I, what I had, what I had internalized subconsciously is God's forgiven you. Now it's your turn to get your act together. Right. <laughs> right. Yes. And just, that's just death for the Christian life and, and just kind of not, not seeing that. And the realization about, about the nature of sanctification. And that was a big one for me. And then it's implications on um, both grace and particularly what we used to call means of grace. Mm-hmm. Um, so spiritual practices and how, you know, I think for many of us today, there's two different things going on. On the, on the one hand, we have the kind of self-helpy movement and it's just kind of like, oh, so I guess spirituality is just kind of self-help, right? So here's tools to self-help. So, and a lot of spiritual basic stuff, unfortunately, can become that like, oh, here's a bunch of spiritual disciplines, do these to grow, you know, and, right. and they just become the equivalent of self-help in its most advanced form, which is interestingly, I would say the bulk of what you see in the spiritual formation is still this kind of thing. In its advanced form, it's just Aristotle. Hmm. It's just develop habits. Right. And, and there's just no, God is superfluous to the discussion. Um, the spirit's superfluous to the discussion. Um, salvation is, super, I mean, it's just a not a theological conversation. It's like, okay, you, you're bad. <laughs> get your act together. Here's a way to habituate that. Right. And, um, and you see that even now, I mean, some of the best selling books of recent memory in terms of Christian formation have been in my mind, just Aristotle. I mean, there's just nothing Christian about them. And so that really kind of altered quite a lot. And, you know, my study of Edwards was profound for me. I mean, that, Mm -hmm. that was a real education in how we used to think um, in early evangelical thought, but the depth of the reform tradition and, um, John Owen has been this for me in many ways. Um, my, my dissertation got me into Owen quite a lot. And I've actually gone on, I've sent my two of my TAs to do PhDs in Owen now. So I'm, for whatever reason, I've got a small cottage industry of Owen studies happening, but, um, but they, you know, the, the Puritans particularly, I mean, they had such a profound insight pastorally about the nature of the soul and the presence of God. And to use Calvin's image, you know, the, the, the heart is a factory of idols and just yep. learning from the inside what that is like and how, you know, even prayer becomes the place where, where idols are made. And that the realization that, you know, this used to define our tradition, like evangelicalism, like was defined as the filthy rags tradition. <laughs> and somewhere along the way, we became those who sanctify practices like you know, and we just, you know, if as long as you do this, then poof, you know, it's an, <laughs> I just yep. kind of think that things are magic. Yep. And, 
And so that seeing how I understood things intellectually, but they actually hadn't come to kind of shape my engagement with God in reality. And that, that realization was, was hard. And it's, it's one of those things that I struggle with now. It's like, it's not like I didn't hear these things. Right. And I see it with my students, like, I can tell, I'll confront them with this all the time. It's like, well, wait a second, you heard this in the last class. Like, why are you still thinking this way? And it's just amazing what the flesh has done um, and how, how, how fractured our understanding of these things are and how idolatrous all of our practices become so readily. Yeah. It's interesting, Kyle, you're, you're speaking about it from the spiritual formation direction, plus the systematic theology and your studies in the Puritans. And I can see Roger just glowing and excited <laughs> from the biblical counseling perspective that is his area. And uh, he's just kind of nodding along, but Roger, you're hearing things that are resonating. Yeah. I think, you know, using the words like definitive sanctification and, and that understanding, you know, between our position in Christ and what our practice looks like. I just, I agree with you that Mm -hmm. positional or definitive has not been emphasized. What's been emphasized is what we're doing and it's become such an emphasis on us. We lose sight of Christ and then we try to do things in our own strength that lead us away from Christ instead of more dependence on him. So totally. Totally. Yeah. Totally. And it really is just the, it's just, you know, every time we sin, it's just a reenactment of the garden, right? It's, mm. you know, we're just hiding and covering or wheeling and dealing. Like I look back at my prayer, I'm like, I've prayed exactly like Adam prayed in the garden. It's like, <laughs> I'm going to throw this guy under the bus. I'm going to throw her under the bus, whatever it takes, you know? And it's like, we're car salesmen all of a sudden. And, and, you know, one of the ways I look at it is well, when I talk to my students about what spiritual mission is as a discipline, I'm like, you know, basically it's just, um, learning how to navigate God's presence. Mm. And like when I think of a biblical theological kind of, it's just, you know, God's presence is unusual, right? Like, cause we are called before the whirlwind and, and God's presence is undoing. And, you know, when the, what's this, you know, what is the Pentateuch about other than the fact that, wait, God's moving in. Uh Oh, yeah. <laughs> what does that mean? Right. The, 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 the Sinai God, that God is moving in the camp. Okay. Yeah. That's interesting. You know, how do we navigate this? Right. How do we understand this? Um, from Leviticus on, the question becomes, what does it mean to draw near um, to a God who said, do not draw near lest you die? That's right. right. And it's it's only in Christ that we now have the imperative to draw near boldly because of the, our great high priest. And so um, in many ways, that has shaped very deeply my prayer life. Yeah. Because, you know, for us, for John and I, the, and this is a, a line John taught me, so it's an original, original line to John, but as a seminary student, he taught me, you know, prayer is not a place to be good. It's a place to be honest. Mm. And that's that for me, that has changed quite a lot because I, I just began to realize like, wow. And I, not only did I see it in my own life, but I, I still see it in new ways in other people's lives. And when I see it in someone else, it helps me see how I've done it. So like with my students, I see this all the time. My theology students, they come to seminary, they think, okay, I'm going to focus all my energy. I'm, I really want to get the doctrine of the atonement down. Like I really great. Praise God. You know, they give themselves to it. And then when they pray, they try to atone for their sins. <laughs> and it just, and I, I remember was watching this happen. Oh, and I remember thinking, yeah, I've totally done that. I've yeah. totally turned against myself harshly. And there's this fantasy going on that God's kind of watching this and kind of slowly putting a lightning bolt down. And the, just the realization of God's presence 
create, you know, in God's presence, the heart kind of starts vibrating, the flesh starts kind of, you know, convulsing and, and we have to navigate these things. And unfortunately, in most of these places, people haven't been taught how their flesh affects them in that way. They don't understand the nature of the conscience. They don't, um, they still deeply believe. Again, I think one of the echoes of the fall is this deep belief that, that I actually need to fix myself before I can come to God. That's right. And that God becomes the problem to navigate, right? I mean, that's the, the shocking of the garden is the shock of the garden is Adam doesn't say, thank the Lord he's here. He'll know what to do, but it's high. You know? like, right. And that's so much of my prayer life was precisely that. And so that, that has been a profound kind of alteration of my understanding of things. And, and again, it's one of those things that I, I still see to this day areas that I'm still learning that I'm so, wow, I, I still don't actually, I find this with, with certain sin or certain, with certain sin, like anger, let's say, I, I find it easier to talk about my anger in prayer Mm. than like the psalmist to bring my anger into the presence of God. Interesting. And, you know, that it's when I talk about it, it's past tense. And it's it's something that's like I'm a little removed from it. It doesn't it's not like I'm not in it. And there's a real sense when I'm detached from it. It's like it's not mine anymore. Um, Man, you read the psalmists and they are just they are not just undone poetically. (laughs) They're, They're undone in prayer. Yeah. And that's interesting, you know, that at, at no point, as John told me once, and I, and I had the same experience. He's like, when I went to seminary, I hated the Psalms. Yes. Because I tried to study them. <laughs> and you just, <laughs> you just can't study them all that well. You're like, until you pray them, yeah. it, it really is somewhat baffling. And I, I, it makes me wonder what it would have been like to grow up at, with Cal- Calvin's church, <laughs> chanting the Psalms. You know, I mean, like, how would that have shaped expectations in prayer when the bulk of your experience in, in prayer to God was lamentation. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Not yeah. kind of tent revivally kind of let's get excited, which is what I grew up with, right? It was like a yeah. shine Jesus shine. <laughs> let's kind of, you know, scream that out until people get excited. And, and that, you know, praise God that, you know, there's moments in the Christian life that are just kind of full of rejoicing, but no one had helped me navigate <laughs> what happens when I'm lamenting. Yeah. Um, what happens when I'm angry, you know, and that's, and so that, those are the kinds of questions we want to, we want to get down into some of that stuff to really try to help people navigate. What does it mean to actually give myself in prayer here? And, and honestly, I think you guys did a really fine job at that, that, that section uh, on the Psalms and praying the Psalms was, uh, I mean, as was really the rest of the, the whole book itself, just really helpful, helpful to think through. Uh, I, I resonated with that, uh, where, where you were talking about the fact that in seminary, you did hate the Psalms. I, I felt the same way. I think I said in a sermon a number of years ago going, I, I didn't, I didn't even like the Psalms. I didn't, I mean, uh, you know, I know Luther talked about the epistle of straw, you know, James, but I was thinking, get rid of the Psalms. You know, why do we need these poetic, uh, you know, th- but what are we talking now? I, I can't live without them. Um, yeah. And, and I'm learning that more and more, you know, one of the questions that I was thinking about is how you and John Co decided to write the book together. You alluded to his mentorship in some regards in your life. And then honestly, I just a practical question. What did that entail putting a book together? The two of you? Yeah. Yeah. Well, it's funny. Cause I've actually, I, and this is some, at some, um, some areas of the Academy, it's normal to write 
with others and some it's not and theology is not normal i mean it's unnormal and yet i've i do it a lot so i do it actually more than almost anyone i know so this is john's the fourth person i've co-written something with um some are books some are just articles and things like that but i've, I've had three different co-authors with books okay. and it all's a bit different and you know in in this one it was weird because in one sense you know john's been a mentor to me and my own kind of prayer life has totally changed because of him and yeah. and yet our stories were very similar and um, but in the other sense, I was a bit of a mentor to him when it comes to writing, because writing is not something he, he he has ever really like he he's kind of an older generation where he, he got he got a job before his Ph.D. was even done. And so he went straight out of Ph.D. into like I researched to teach, I researched to teach and then turning a corner to writing gets hard after a while. If that and, and coming out of a British Ph.D., I'm much more trained to, you know, you write, you write, you write, you know, and that's just kind of what you do. And so. The nice thing was I knew we think, I knew our thought aligned on this because that's always a question when you're co-writing with someone like, uh, what do I, and this is, so Oliver Crisp and I wrote uh, um, the text that a lot of people use in seminaries to introduce Edwards, like an introduction to Jonathan Edwards. And there's a point where we just disagree <laughs> that we had to talk about. Yeah. And so, you know, he, he kind of, and we, we tried to charitably like show students, like, well, let's show students what it means to disagree with one another well. And so we, we try to do that. And but the nice thing was we didn't have that issue here. And so what I did is I basically took talks he had been given because he's been doing this for three decades now. He's been talking mm -hmm. about this. And so I basically took it and I really drove the train on it. So I kind of said, let me just take what you've done, what I've done, put it together. We have different emphases. Um, I had you know been struck by some things that as I've been teaching this stuff in churches over the last decade. Um, that had led me down a trajectory that it hadn't led him down yet. And, mm -hmm. and so I pulled it together. Then I kind of shipped it off to him and he did a wholesale kind of rewrite kind of thing. And then I got it. So we okay. kind of went that way, which was nice. It, it, it depends on, on your relation. I mean, the nice thing about it is we're close enough where I, I don't have a problem editing his stuff like it was mine. Mm. And that, that gets important for the sake of readability. Um, sure. It's hard when there's two just vastly different voices. Of course. And so we, we, were, we worked really hard on trying to kind of edit each other and just being okay with the fact that it now sounds maybe not exactly like either of our voices individually. It's now this third voice that kind of pulls the two of us together. So that, that's kind of how we approached it. Yeah. Well, well, the book is titled Where Prayer Becomes Real, How Honesty with God Transforms Your Soul. And I'll say it just for the sake of our audience by Kyle Strobel and John Coe. Um, it's brand new. Came out when, uh, Kyle? March 2nd. Oh, I mean, really brand new. Mm, yeah, Man, yeah. We got it fresh off the press. Look, we're doing <laughs> this for you, Kyle. We're bringing you on really <laughs> on in this process. Uh, how's the reception been so far? Yeah, you know, I've been so encouraged. Like, I, the one of the things we heard that early on so this is before the book even came out i had sent I, i'd sent out drafts so i'll do this and i'll send out like i usually have someone in my mind like who's my target audience and and so i sent it out to the person that was my target audience like i even had this person in mind while i was writing it and it was so interesting the feedback they gave me was you know i've been a christian now for what was it 40 years and in my entire christian life people had told me you know you could tell god anything god can, you can tell god anything you want you should just come and share your heart with god she goes, I had no idea what that meant until now. And that was really incredible because I do think, you know, prayer is one of those areas where we actually have, there's bad cliches, but most cliches about prayer are pretty good. Like, and it's true, you can tell God what you're about, but the, the fantasy is 
I'll just tell someone that they go, oh, okay. And they'll go <laughs> and suddenly it'll right. transform their prayer life. And, and so that has been really encouraging. I've been encouraged by how many people that are really giving themselves not to just read it, but to kind of prayerfully engage it. Mm-hmm. Um, it is still pretty early. One of the things I haven't yet heard that I, I'm waiting to hear still is, you know, one of the thoughts we had as, um, as we wrote it was, wouldn't it be great if groups of people went through it? And so we're still waiting to hear. I'm like, I, I'm curious to hear, we wrote a whole group guide in the back. Yeah. Um, and we, cause you know, it's funny when I, when I took the position I have now, so John's not only my mentor, but now my boss. So we, we, we teach <laughs> in the Institute of Spiritual Formation. And I remember when I first got hired, we, every other week we have an executive team meeting. So there's, um, back then it was five. Now it's more up to like eight of us get together. And we had this laundry list of stuff we had to get through. And I remember the first time looking at this stuff and going, okay. And, and John, <laughs> John would say, okay, let's, you know, let's, we're just going to read John 15 for a while. Okay. Okay. So read John 15 for a while. <laughs> now, now let's, let's all spend some time going on. And instead of just saying what you need prayer for, why don't we just offer our prayers up to the Lord and together we'll just kind of hold each other in prayer before God. And, and that way we can hear what your prayer requests are in your prayers. And you could just, and I'm like, and we're an hour in now. I'm like, we got a laundry list of stuff to do. <laughs> like, and, and one of the things that I've so appreciated about him was, you know, even though we do have, there's all these issues and there's all these, and the thing that he approached, he's like, yeah, those are always going to be there let's spend, let's start in prayer. And, and if we don't get to those things, we don't get to those things. <laughs> wow. And it took me a while to get, get okay with that. I mean, there's, I, there's enough of me that just needs to like, I need some tick off some boxes. Of this list, right. you know? um, and so that was, that was a profound, and that's become one of my favorite things. And it's amazing how often we learn what each other's going through in that time mm. and where our burdens are. Um, how we're praying for people and one another and how we're, you know, how we're entering into that together. And so um, we're hoping that groups really, really do this. You know, one of the things that I wanted to tackle a little bit with this book is, is what I said earlier about how lonely prayer is for so many people. And I, you know, I, I like to normalize the fact that like you should, others, people should know what your prayer life is like. And that, um, and not everyone, obviously, but, you know, like, you know, but spouses, certainly close friends, like, like these things should be talked about. Like, wow, you know, I just, I, you know, I, I got to pray and I can't stay awake. Um, and I, you know, okay, fair enough. <laughs> so let's talk yeah. about that. That's interesting, you know? Um, and yet I think so many people end up struggling with prayer. And I think the disaster is that so many people just buy into the idea of I must not be good at this. And they think they should just outsource it to those who are. Yeah. And they just give up and they turn to something else. And I think that's the real tragedy we're hoping to avoid. Yeah. You think that in in trying to get groups to pray together and to be more honest in their prayers with God, it's it's one thing when you're alone with the Lord and you're praying to him, you're opening and pouring out your soul. And I like how you you know, you encourage people to pour out what's in your heart. He already knows it. Mm-hmm. You know, you're accepted by him already. So there's nothing to fear. But when we're with groups of people, prayer seems to turn more into form and more into hiding mm-hmm. rather than communicating with our Lord, with others around us. And I just wonder how, how you walk through that with people to have intimacy with their Lord around others and not feel uh, maybe judged because of what's, what's coming out of their hearts at yeah. that moment. Right? No, that's a great question. And this, to be honest, this, this, this is something I didn't anticipate. Um, but when we started writing the group guide, this became the major question. And mm-hmm. I just never thought that. And the more we thought about that, the more, because 
because we see dangers on both sides. On one side, there's the danger of people to, it just all becomes almost performative, just straight like, and, and you know, I mean, some of that might just be with time, right? Once you get used to it a little more, I mean, some of that just takes a while. Um, but the other side of things is there are people that maybe are, are inappropriately sharing in prayer <laughs> with a group, right? Like whatever your time alone with God, it isn't exactly the same thing. And so it is interesting. Like it does take some wisdom and, you know, prayer is a funny thing and it showed up here and it showed up in intercession for us mm-hmm. as how messy prayer can become. You know, I, I'm sure all of us have prayed in a way to teach someone. Mm-hmm. So we're all, we're praying, but we're also teaching. We're also training a little bit. We're also, you know, like, right. the, like you know, with children, you do this a little bit or, with, you know, younger Christians perhaps, or this, and it, it, there is an element of, of kind of shepherding and wisdom of, of what do I, I bring in here that is, that is actually kind of receivable by this group. Okay. Um, you know, I think of, you know, in first Corinthians eight and 10, you have the, the weaker brother issue. And, and there's maybe a parallel here where there's certain things that, you may have to discern for the group probably aren't helpful for them. Um, you know, and um, th- maybe they can't hear this and maybe that's okay. Um, and, and so that the study guide became a, a much more difficult and much longer thing that we originally existed because we wanted to help kind of bring up some of these questions. And, but one of the areas for me that this just kind of reminds me of that, you know, when, when I started speaking on this, I was speaking at a church, a Presbyterian church down in Texas and it's a big church and they have these, they have these, these large um, Bible studies before church. And they, they originally asked me to come and speak to their Bible study. I was like, oh, okay, I think, I think 10 people would be there. It was larger than my church, <laughs> like 200 <laughs> people. Here. I was like, wow, it's a Bible study. This is incredible. And I gave this long talk on prayer. And it was a lot of the stuff that was in the book. And it was so interesting because all the questions revolved around intercession. Hmm. And I remember telling them, I'm like, I'm going to write something for you folks. Cause I, I'm like, I'm not sure I'm answering you well. And I need to go back and really sit with scripture for a while and wrestle through this. And, and so I did that. And, and I realized that, you know, intercession had become something like, and I see this happen in folks, like once they see their stuff a little more and they realize what prayer can be and they can enter into it in the Psalms, the prayer can sometimes move away from intercession or intercession can almost be seen as kind of a, just an obvious or maybe even simplistic way to pray. Mm-hmm. And the more I wrestled with it, I'm like, man, intercession's messy and intercession is messy because of how relational it is and it is one of those areas where i really worry that we maybe have most adopted a magical view of god Hmm. where we kind of just think if i say the words in the right way poof maybe that that'll happen and and I, I shared in the book, but the, the way this came up for me was scrolling through Facebook one day and seeing someone asking for prayer and the immediate response of my heart being annoyance. And I knew I was annoyed because I didn't know the person. And I knew if I skip it, I was going to feel guilty. And I don't want to <laughs> feel guilty today. I just want right. to skip right through it. And so as I scrolled through, I was like, yeah, God, you know, you know whatever that person needs, you know, <laughs> I had to stop it. I was like, wait a second, like what has just happened there? And you know, it's so interesting, though, the more we sat with this and John's older, so he's had experiences now with, grow, you know, children growing up and leaving the house and those experiences and now having adult children, that's different from children in, in the home still. And that's but, you know, we all have questions of in-laws and of questions of, you know, suffering a family and, um, you know, parishioners or students who are frustrated, you know, all these things where in prayer, suddenly we are with another and we have to navigate what's actually going on there. And I remember Edwards. Edwards has a great little sermon 
on the nature of envy. And it's one of those sermons you could just tell what he's doing. He's just sitting back in his chair going, when was the last time I really envied someone? And he's just narrating it in his sermon. He's like, here's what you're going to do. And he just starts, and it, it was, I remember just hearing him preach or like reading him preach it, imagining him hearing it and, and just realize like he, he's exactly right about this. And this is where things like in prayer, he's like, I can totally imagine a scenario where, you know, your friend or someone, you know, gets a big raise or, you know, wins the lottery or gets someone buys my house, or, you know, something great happens for them. And instead of rejoicing with those who rejoice, immediately turning to, will that be good for them? Are they really mature enough to handle that kind of money? I wonder if, you know, and he starts kind of unpacking what's an envy. And, you know, in so many times in prayer, I mean, this is where not my will, but yours be done will look differently in intercession than it will in kind of normal petitions mm-hmm. where sometimes we're praying for others. And it's just now, Lord, I, Lord, you know, I don't know. Like I've, I've just told you what I think you should do. <laughs> you need my advice. <laughs> and, mm-hmm. But Lord, you know, you know what they do. And, and just realizing how much of us get caught up in that. And I know when I, as I pray for my children, like I, I'm not distant from that, like that, that is very intimately connected with, with my willing and, and learning how to kind of bring those things before the Lord and, and just let them be his in a sense. And to use prayer as a place to rejoice with those who rejoice and to mourn with those who mourn. I mean, I think that there's something that Paul in particular notes about being present in the spirit that, that we're actually able to be present to another. I mean, that, that's a unique reality for Christians and that, um, and particularly in the era of COVID, you know, in this last year, I mean, I, I like, I, I think there's some deep spiritual resources that scripture points to that, that we can actually be with one another and mm. distance isn't an issue. Um, and that, that in, in my entirety of my Christian life, I just never conceived until I started really sitting with Paul on some of this stuff going, wow, like, I, when, whenever I read, you know, I'm absent from person, but present in the spirit. Like I just read that as a nice hallmark moment, Paul had <laughs> like, Oh, Paul, that's sweet. You know, <laughs> and just really sitting with scripture there going, well, no, Paul actually means something, you know, and that, that, that's incredible when you think about it. That, that, yeah. And, and, you know, and then of course, with all things you poke around a bit and you find out the tradition actually thought about this quite well and, <laughs> and all sorts of things to say about it. But, um, but that, you know, it really did expose me to how messy, both intercession as well as group prayer can be um, because we're, we are forced to be watchful of how our relationships actually shape what, what we're actually doing in prayer. Yeah. There's a, you know, the the whole book really helps us to think about our own hearts in the process of prayer, which I think is what you mean by honesty there. I think that's a part of it. Uh, I want to come coming to the, to the book again, and just kind of thinking of the overall format, uh, of the book. First of all, I, I want our uh, listeners to know it's not a long book. Uh, I was actually shocked at the fact that it was not a long book. <laughs> Kyle, like, I expected we worked hard you, on that. Yeah. <laughs> we worked really hard. And, oh, and yeah. you know, someone who reads Edwards all the time and any Puritans usually is going to want to write longer and longer. No, but you guys, you kept it really nice and concise. But more than that, I, I felt like what was important to this book were the pauses and not just the pauses at the end of each chapter, which was really important and the process that you walked us through, but the pauses in the chapters as well. Can you speak to that? Is that intentional format? And what's your take on how you put it all together? Yeah, no, that was very intentional. We worked really hard on the, on the keeping it short. I mean, that was, that's something that 
you know, some of the, some of this book comes out of some regrets I've had of previous projects. Hmm. And so some of those pauses and some of those more practical things where we aren't just trusting that, Oh, this will make sense. Like, like we're actually landing the plane for folks. Like, Oh, there's an, there's an earlier project I did that I look back on now. And I'm like, man, I wish I would have done more of that. Hmm. And so that was something we really wanted to include. And um, we really wanted, you know, the danger with prayer is that it, it becomes something interesting to think about. And we really wanted people not only to just kind of contemplate their own prayer life, but actually talk to God about their own prayer life. And that's what, what is so unusual. And, and, you know, we share stories about our kind of experience in prayer of, you know, pressing the pause button and just talking to ourselves. Mm. Oh, Kyle, come on, wake up or yeah, <laughs> focus. <laughs> and, and the funny thing is, it's hilarious when you think about it. Like it, we're, we're acting as if God's not there anymore. Right. Like God's not like, you know, you, I'm here, right? <laughs> you know, I'm right here. And, and the funny, the things that we do that are just so odd in prayer. And, and again, how quickly we kind of make ourselves the object of prayer. Yeah. And so, you know, we wanted to try to, to, there's a couple of things we did very intentionally, one of which is try to create those spaces. But the other of which is, you know, and this is comes out of our teaching is one of the things we've learned about teaching this material is, you know, the average seminary student, they, they have a vision of what seminary is going to be. And most of it's academic, right? They're thinking either practical, like I want to learn how to preach, or I want to learn to read the Bible or theoretical, like I want to, I want answers. I want to know theology really well. And so they land in my class. They don't even know what it is, like into spiritual theology, like what on earth, you know, what are we doing? And and what we have found is that one of the most helpful ways to kind of grab them is to just tell them what their life has been like from the inside. Mm -hmm. And this is something I learned from the Puritans, actually. Like, this is what all the great Puritan preachers did, is they told you what it was like for you when you sinned and felt shameful and what your heart did. And so what we want to do with the first section in particular is, is kind of just name the reality of prayer, like, yeah, you, you realize your mind's been wandering for the last 10 minutes. Okay, <laughs> let's talk about that. You know, like yeah. what what's going on or, or what are your expectations in prayer? Or, you know, it's amazing how many, how many students I'll meet who it's very clear when they go and pray and no one's ever talked to them about this, but when they go and pray, they have a sense, again, whatever that means, this, this kind of impulse, whatever. They have this innate sense that God is rolling their eye, his eyes at them. <laughs> It's like, wow, like what, what is prayer like then? Or, yeah. you know, one of the passages that has become so meaningful for me over the last several years is the first John 3, 19 and 20 passage where, you know, John's talking about when someone's before him and your heart condemns you yep. and the reality of your heart condemning you in prayer. And I just, you know, it's so clear to me as I look back at my Christian life, like so often my heart would condemn me. And what I told myself is that God has condemned me. Mm-hmm. And now prayer became a place to try to convince God not to, whatever that would mean, right? Yeah. Or just to despair. Yep. And, and when John says, you know, God is greater than your heart and he knows everything, like this is now, John pushes them Godward and in their condemnation. And, and so, you know, we wanted to name those things and just kind of un, unravel a little bit of what is this, this kind of mess that goes on in prayer that actually seems to make sense because you never actually looked at it. You never, you never thought about it. You just have the sense of these things and you've used these weird senses to judge how prayer was, whatever that means, or if God is with you or not, whatever that means, you know, it's like we, we create these weird scenarios and we wanted to really unravel those and show that oftentimes that's just the flesh 
failing to navigate the presence of God in faith, you know, longing for sight, but not longing for what the Lord provides. And so the goal was to really help people not only think about that, but really enter into the truth of what is going on when you pray um, and help them then go Godward with it rather than just meditating on it themselves. Yeah, I think you did a good job of that in places where that you were talking about, even in of examination, that it's done in light of Christ, mm-hmm. that what you see coming out of your heart, take it to Christ, that you kept yeah. pointing people back to him, because without him, then it's just despair. And That's then right. it just is just how awful I am. I'm, I'm not accepted. But pointing back to Christ gives that freedom to be honest to where you're at and to rest in him and to truly pray. You know, I, I, I like how you, where he's talking about you. Sometimes we're talking at him, not to him. You know, I'm like, yeah. Oh yeah. I, I found myself doing that at times and, and how subtle that is. Right. Totally. And so it, it was very helpful to see you just keep pushing people back to back to the Lord. And and to piggyback on that, uh, uh, Roger, I think one of the things that I think you and I both really appreciated about the book was this emphasis on the union with Christ. Mm-hmm. That's where it all is, the whole thing. And, and that's why I kept thinking as I'm reading, I'm going, this isn't just about prayer. This is about the Christian life. This, and, and prayer is, is just kind of a microcosm of the Christian life in a sense or of one aspect. Of, but it, it's all your emphasis uh, was on this starting point of our union with Christ and everything else comes out of that. And I thought that was fantastic. Yeah, no, totally. The way, yeah, the way we think about this, I mean, salvation governs spiritual formation. So whatever your view of spiritual formation is ultimately just an extension of your soteriology and, and a re- or just a recapitulation of it, if we can use that language. And so I think, I think it's one of the reasons why many people end up becoming moralists because they, the, 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 sal- the view of salvation they've picked up on is that, um, God's just forgiven them and, and there is no account of union, right? There's no account of adoption and union with Christ and these things. But once you recognize kind of union and communion stuff and that, that, that is now center. Well then, yeah. I mean, the Christian life just is navigating the presence of God, right? It is being called before. And, and that there's a Luther line we use in the book. It's my favorite Luther quote, um, which is, you know, if you look at your life apart from Christ, you're done for. And, and of course, Luther psychologically knew that quite well. <laughs> <laughs> he just had that kind of in him, but, but I get that, you know, cause that's exactly what the flesh wants to do. And, and faith is this refusal to look at ourselves apart from Christ that, and, and the trust that he actually makes the same commitment that the father does not look at us apart from Christ either. And what that does to free us up to actually pray um, is truly astonishing and and in many ways you know for me you know going back to your earlier question jason about like things that have like key ideas that have totally changed trajectories really and this has happened to me years ago actually when i was working on a book with another friend of ours actually jamin on beloved dust i um the, the realization that prayer is something we enter and not something we generate hmm. that became profound for me because you know what that did that that undermined how prayer in my mind had become performative. Like I've just got to perform here. I've got to be good. And the realization that before I utter a word, the son and the spirit are interceding for me. Yeah. And I actually enter into their intercession. And, and with this book, the, the, 
that, that, that over the years that's developed in my mind as I've thought more about it and, and read and really wrestled with those biblical texts. But one of the things that struck me with this book in particular with honesty is the spirit we're told is groaning with groanings too deep for words. So however the spirit's interceding in my court, like it's honest, <laughs> it's very realistic. And just how my prayers over the years, which were all cleaned up and sounded really nice, but weren't very honest. Like, how do those sound against the backdrop of the spirits groaning? And like it, it, it really, it really pressed me to consider, you know, if, if we're not, if we're not really navigating the depths and for me, and you know, I have plenty of students that just, they don't want anything to do with that. They're like, "Eh, I don't want, and there's this deep belief that ultimately their hope, it resides in them rather than in Christ. I mean, that's the problem. Like they're still haven't fully rooted out this idea that, that no, like you don't define yourself by looking into yourself. <laughs> you look to Christ to define you. That's who you are. And it's only before the face of Christ that we have hope. And so it's, it's, it's seeing, you know, the more of my sin I see is an advantage to me because the more I can then grasp upon Christ and depend upon him and the, and the one who has forgiven much will love much. And so, and that's the trajectory that, again, that's something the Puritans taught me well. I mean, I, Owen and Edward and these folks, they, they just got that in a profound way and that we no longer have to be afraid of seeing these things. And yet it's amazing culturally. And I think part of this is self-help. I think there's other stuff going on here too, but part of the culture that, that we're in now there is this innate assumption that no, we just need to move past this stuff and not look at it. And, and it's amazing because I think they, they miss out on a real opportunity to, to really see what Christ has done. Like it's one thing to affirm that Christ died for my sins. It's a totally different thing to see the depth of your sin and say, Christ died for me here. <laughs> right. Like that, that's just some, that's just a different thing. Right. And it's, it's easy to kind of abstract these things away from our life. Um, and I think he just calls us into them. Yeah. And, and that's what, I mean, honestly, this book uh, did just that it, it helped you, you brought a lot of interesting, important strands of scripture and, and biblical themes that uh, we may not have tied to our prayer life before, mm. uh, but you brought it together in this book in such a helpful way that, you know, just starting with union in Christ, looking at the, the fact that the spirit and the, and the Lord Jesus are interceding for us already. And all these things uh, that you brought together, I, I thought it's, it's going to be a, a really helpful resource to the church. Uh, and, and I do pray that the Lord will use it and, and use it mightily. And I'll tell you what, this is hard to do, Kyle, but you, you're, you're sort of almost even redeeming spiritual formation for me. Um, <laughs> My life goal. <laughs> you know, you know, I've not been the biggest fan of all the things that come out, but you, you know, this is not the first book that you've written that's made me go, okay, there's some, uh, there's some uh, really cool things going on there. Uh, I don't know, Roger, did you want to uh, pick at anything uh, before we ask for some final thoughts? Uh, no, no, I don't. <laughs> no, I mean, it, it going through it was just really helpful in many ways of connecting a lot of what I've studied. Uh, recently of just the heart and what's coming out of the heart, the thoughts, the desires, the actions, and hadn't really thought of it, of the level of prayer and seeing how, how we pray, what we pray, 
it is really a reflection of what's going on in the heart in a significant way that even catching it in my own lives and in others and helping direct people back to the Lord, um, because it does go back to the reality of how we view God directs so much of our life. And totally. if prayer is an intimate part of our relationship with Christ, it's a good place to look at and to uh, be encouraged to, to pray um, and to understand how we're praying. So yeah, I appreciated the book. Uh, it was encouragement to go through. Oh, I'm so glad. Kyle, if, if you had one kind of summary thought that you wanted to share with someone before they haven't picked up the book yet, yet and why kind of why you wrote the book what is it that you wanted to get across to the mm. believers in the world yeah well you know i mean in many ways and this is you know this is maybe something that's just a, i feel, feel like just has defined what i've given myself to over the last decade or two is that it actually is meaningful that god's power is made perfect in our weakness yeah and and prayer when prayer feels weak that, that's not that's not a failure to pray well, right? And, and we like to talk about powerful prayer and we talk and, and prayer can be powerful, but you know, prayer will, will, will and should be in many ways a struggle because God isn't just the cosmic vending machine on the other side of the line. Like you are, you are standing before another who not only has a will <laughs> that's different from yours, but is, is in fact the whirlwind. Um, but it's this one um, who has given himself to you in Christ Jesus. And so, you know, for the, I, I love how you put it earlier, Jason, about like the, in many ways, the book is more about the Christian life. And then, and in one sense about prayer in precisely because so much of the Christian life um, to use that passage from Paul is praying without ceasing, right? It's, yeah. it's, it's a consistently of offering our life to the Lord. And so yeah. I would say, if you struggle with offering your life to the Lord, if you struggle with navigating things like prayer and your mind wandering and falling asleep or wondering, am I doing this right? Or, you know, <laughs> um, you know, we're hoping to not only answer some of those practical questions, which we hope to answer, but also to cast a vision for the Christian life as a whole. Yeah. Well, I will say this. I, I thought the book was, hopeful it, it really lent itself to you know i know a lot of pilgrims in this journey that are tired are weary totally. struggling going i i don't know how to pray or, or it's why isn't this working kind of you address these things and the book i came away feeling very hopeful and mm. excited um to to go back before the lord with this honesty mm. um and, and oh, I'm so it. glad to hear that. I'm so glad to hear yeah. that. Yeah. Cause that's, that's what we wanted. I mean, it's, it's from, from two people who at times in their lives lost hope in prayer yeah. um, and rediscovered it in honesty that I, I hope we can save people from giving up. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, absolutely. This is a, a, a well, a worthwhile read. And so to our listeners, we do commend it. If you are interested again, where prayer becomes real, how Honesty with God Transforms Your Soul by Kyle Strobel and John Coe. Uh, we hope you enjoyed this episode of the Rod and Staff podcast, uh, and we hope that you will join us again. Feel free to subscribe, send us any feedback that you'd like. Check us out on Facebook. Uh, until next time. If you enjoyed this episode of the Rod and Staff podcast, please subscribe and share with others. For more information or to contact the host with questions or comments, please send email correspondence to feedback at rodnstaff.org. That is feedback at rod, the letter N, staff.org.